Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a special conversation with Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers on the state of the world right now. And they'll mainly be discussing the recent riots, protests, and demonstrations that have been happening across America and other parts of the world, and the hope that we as Christians can have in the midst of all of this. As always, I invite you to check out our show notes for links to our YouTube channel and other social media handles. We are in the midst of a video series on the book of Revelation, and we are also in the process of releasing psalm chant videos that we think will be a blessing to you. We really hope that you are edified and sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing the recent protests. Welcome to this special edition of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background running the machinery and making sure that everything stays on track and uh, making sure that everything is smoothly edited. Thank you for listening uh, to this edition of the podcast. Uh, We wanted to take some time to address some of the upheavals of uh, contemporary world. We've been doing a podcast series on the book of Acts, and we'll resume that. Uh, And we we continue to do that, but uh, occasionally we do step aside and address various issues that are confronting the church and confronting the world. Uh, we did that a number of weeks ago and talked about the challenges of worshiping during the pandemic and the challenges of church ministry during the pandemic. What we want to address today has to do with the protest movements, uh, largely protest movements provoked by the the uh, killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis which has become not only a national movement on a, in the United States on a large scale, but also a global movement. Uh, we have James and Alistair here today who have some insight on what's going on in Great Britain. Of course, that doesn't exhaust all the places where protests are going on, but at least we have two different countries represented here, and we can try to get some of that sense of the global character of this. But really what we're aiming for is twofold. We want to, we want to contribute to Christians thinking about these issues on two levels. The first is to try to penetrate beyond the surface superficial level of the protests and the events that provoke them. The issues of racism and racial injustice are real, I believe, in the United States. It's been a an ongoing wound in the body of Christ in the United States that the black and white church have not been in close communion with each other. I think that's a, a hugely damaging to the church in general perhaps to the white churches in particular. And that's an area where I think there's a a great deal of work to be done. So those racial issues are real. We're not trying to minimize those. But we also see something else going on in these protest movements that make them look like they're motivated by a kind of religious passion and religious zeal. Some of the forms that these protests take, uh, the way that the protests are dealing with opposition, uh, some of the, the ritual aspects of these protests make us uh, think that there's a there's a religious dimension to this that needs to be penetrated and needs to be explored more. So that rather than just look at the, as I said, the superficial and headline level kind of analysis, we want to we want to think about the religious depths of what's happening. The other thing we want to talk about is the uh, the way that Christians should stand toward movements like this. Many people look at widespread protests 
some of them violent, some of them destructive of property, uh, some people killed, and then some very strange outbreaks of uh, civil disobedience, secession from the United States uh, in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle. Uh, and uh, that can be, it is very disorienting, and it seems like the world is falling apart. Uh, some Christians will believe that it's a sign of the second coming that's just on the horizon. Others will think, uh, you know, we're hopeless. America is uh, is uh, is uh, down, going down the tubes, uh, and that means that our uh, that's a that's a blow to our hopes for the kingdom. Uh, and I th- I think it's it's crucial in our view for Christians to uh, take a stand toward this move these movements and all other things, a stand that's grounded in the hope that we have in the promises of God. And those promises are not just promises for a future new creation and future glory and future communion with God, but they are promises that have to do with what God is doing in the world right now. Uh, and uh, whatever, however we analyze what's going on, we have to do it from a posture of hope, uh, not a kind of superficial optimism that uh, you know, there's going to be some uh, things are going to turn out okay, but rather a deeply grounded hope in Jesus' promises to his church. So uh, we want to think a little bit about how Christians can be hopeful and how that uh, that hope can guide our actions in response to these movements as we go through our discussion today. So those two things we want to really focus on, the, as I said, the religious dimensions of the, these movements and then the Christian posture of hope and what that might, how that might express itself in practical action in the current circumstances. Let me um, kick it off by mentioning one particular thing that I think is, is quite striking and dramatic uh, that, again, gets to the religious level of uh, these movements. In the United States, and, and in Britain too, I don't know if this is going on elsewhere, but I know in Britain there's been a couple of, couple of incidents where statues have been uh, either defaced or pulled down. I don't remember what city it was in. Was somebody, somebody, somebody's statue was pulled down and tossed into a river in Great Britain, in England. So there's a couple of things going on there. It's, a, it's, a, it's an iconoclastic movement. There's a strike against the symbolic sculpture and art that populates our public space. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of iconoclasm and it's kind of bid to take over, ma- to master public space. In other words, it looks a lot like the movements that you have in various religious movements. We have uh, the iconoclasm of the Reformation, for example, or the iconoclasm that uh, took place in Iraq uh, when then when ISIS was taking over certain uh, certain areas of Iraq and was destroying ancient artifacts and ancient temples and things as a way of purging the past and making something new uh, that's that's an example of the of uh, what looks like a ritualized and religious act that's uh, uh, ex- expressing some deep hope for a a new start we want to we want to purge ourselves of the of the contaminated past and start over from ground zero so, Peter, what is your evaluation of the iconoclastic dimension of the movement? Would we say that there are some positives and some negatives? Yeah, I think that I would say that. I think that there are certain ways that uh, public space in in, uh, in the United States, for example, has uh, been populated by things that we don't want to honor necessarily. But I guess the the deeper level, the deeper worry, I guess, or the worry about it uh, is something that John Milbank expressed in an essay that he did at the Theopolis website, where he talks about the tendency of these protest movements to to operate on on the premise that the past should not have happened. 
people of the past should not have existed. They should not have held the opinions that they had. And if they hold opinions that are different from ours, then they need to be rejected and, and again, purged. And we need to make a fresh start. Uh, rather than trying to understand them in their own historical circumstances, rather than trying to have some kind of balanced assessment of who these people were, uh, there's, a, there's an assumption there that we have now have come to kind of obvious and transparent knowledge of what is right and good and true. Uh, we know what's, what's right. Uh, our ancestors had these murky, they were, they were groping perhaps toward the clarity that we have. Uh, but there's, there's a, you know, C.S. Lewis's kind of chronological snobbery that's going on there. There's a, there's a moral, uh, there's a, there's a moral, uh, a moralistic ground uh, for this. So I think, I think it is something of a mixed bag, but I guess the, the deeper worry is that there is a, it does seem to be a kind of um, attempted a clean slate to, to uh, erase the past. The past should not have happened. Now we know where, now we know how society should be organized and any symbols of uh, our previous, uh, our previous political order need to be, need to be removed. Perhaps one of the things about statues is that they are one of the clearest material artifacts that stand for ideologies and belief systems and for larger immaterial realities. Um, for instance, the history of our country or the way in which we regard ourselves. And so there's something very cathartic in being able to pull down a statue. You feel that you're striking against the ideology and the um, reality of the belief system and history itself. And to an extent, that is what takes place. So I th think it's understandable that they have become targets. Um, mm. Had that in, you mentioned Iraq, but also the pulling down of Saddam Hussein's statue. That was mm. a moment that expressed the anger and the hurt of the people against a particular figure who was represented on in that. And I think within the UK, there has been a number of different instances, as in the US, where different motives could be Juice. So, can think about the attack on um, Colston statue in Bristol. Is he's a slaver? Um, he's been in this statue in the middle of the city for a long time, and the public have wanted to have him removed and have tried to go through democratic means, and nothing really has been done. And then it's torn down. Now, it's not an ideal way for it to go down, but it's understandable why it would be torn down under those circumstances. Um, when we're talking about the statue of Churchill, for instance, which been, was defaced and then covered up, that's a slightly different case. And I think maybe we need to distinguish between these different instances. And then there's been some attacks upon um, other statues that it's not entirely clear who has done it. Is it some um, right-wing group that's trying to cause um, tensions, or is it actually um, Antifa protesters, or something like that? So maybe some distinctions between the specific targets and the way that they're being targeted. For instance, bringing down Cecil Rhodes' statue in um, Oxford that was brought down as a result of protests. It wasn't torn down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's a very good point. Yeah, I, I was painting with a with, with a very broad brush there, and I also I think you're you're right, Alistair, that the um, there, uh, I, yeah, you're, you're uh, describing it as a catharsis is a is a helpful way to say it. 
And I think the, I guess the point I was trying to make at the beginning is that uh, these really are um, uh, actions, effective actions. They, you could say that they're just symbolism, but uh, we organize our, our common life by such symbols. And so a change of public symbols, a change of how we organize and adorn public space is a significant change in the, the way we understand ourselves and the way we understand who we are, where we came from, what we're about. So uh, yeah, I, I think the it is a uh, it's a symbolic strike, but there's a there's we don't want to we don't want to put the reality and uh, and symbol at odds with each other at all. And and those concerns are properly religious. I think what we what's happened in at least in American culture, and it's probably true in the West, is that we've been conditioned to believe that religion is personal, private, individualistic, and something that happens within the confines of our minds and hearts. Um, but religion always has a public dimension to it, a ceremonial dimension to it, a physical, even artistic dimension to it. And, it, and perhaps um, the Christian church might watch what's happening and realize that we've been remiss with this. I mean, we've pretty much imitated, um, at least in America, the uh, pop culture art, pop culture uh, uh, architecture. Um, and and so we, we don't have much to offer in contrast to the politiza- politicization of statues of uh, art and architecture. Um, and and, and, and perhaps that's why also we don't really have well-reasoned and helpful responses to what's going on is because we've bought into the privatized, internalized, individualistic definition of religion. On that front, we talk a lot about what the protests and various causes are about and what they're trying to achieve and maybe not enough a lot about what a protest actually is in itself as a religious sort of movement um jeff you mentioned um religious rites and ceremonies and a protest has something of that to it um something about it that's internal to itself where there is this community that arises in against some particular reality but that community has a solidarity and a strength that is intoxicating. And it's something that I think presents quite a strong alternative to the atomization and the alienation and the individualism of modern society. This is a large number of people getting together, and they're getting together in solidarity with people who are different from them. There's a sense of the ideal community being formed um, when People are standing shoulder to shoulder with people who are very different from them, from different classes, different races, and with together standing for something that they believe is morally right. And there, I think also there's the moral charge of that, that this isn't just about some extensive deliberation about what is right. There's something of the immediate force of the good um, that's driving this. And I think that for people is very important when you don't have any strong community um, that's a moral community and you're just caught within the cycles of modern society which are very alienated and they do not have the same moral force that I think speaks to a void that 
I think the church has really, um, the church speaks into that. But when people have abandoned the church and the church has not really exercised its public role, then that vacuum will be left and something will need to fill it. Uh, that's a great point, Alistair, and maybe just to uh, make it a little more pointed, uh, the, the, the intensity, the, the, almost the pageantry of a protest, the, um, um, the chanting, uh, maybe, maybe young people are attracted to this because they don't experience that in the church. They don't experience that intensity, that pageantry, that, uh, um, Oh, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to put your finger on exactly what it is, but you, we know what it's like when you have a full church, a liturgical church that's that's singing, that's uh, engaged, um, and it's not just um, a rock concert with a TED talk. Um, and I wonder if people are attracted to this uh, because because it's. It has the trappings of the Christian religion in its moral intensity, in its desire to change the world, um, uh, and something we've lost in modern church, which is basically evangelical church, basically all about psychological adjustment and therapy for individuals. Perhaps another aspect of that is the way that Christianity has given the West a set of values that in, as the West secularizes, the West can no longer deliver on those values. So, for instance, the sense of um, equality before God, which is such an important value from the Christian faith and an achievement societally for the West, that is placed in jeopardy when we reject Christian faith. And in that sort of situation, I think there's, first of all, the felt um, offence of people not being equal and the need for a sort of carnivalesque movement to restore some sort of equality. And so in many pagan societies, there has been this carnivalesque dynamic where, for instance, you'll have this one set of days where social order and hierarchy will be overturned and people will act out in this great drama, the reversal of these things and the pauper and the king are placed alongside each other again. And there's something about this to a protest movement where you feel these inequalities and within the protest movement, there's a sort of leveling effect. And that is something that the Christian faith has always had at the heart of it um, in our liturgy and our uh, gathering together as the church we are constantly reminded that we stand on the same level ground before God. And there is a sort of overturning of the social order that the rich should rejoice in his humiliation, but the poor in his exaltation. Um, and if you don't have that in a society, I think you have some built up tensions and antagonisms that need some sort of um, venting or outlet or um, valve to let them out. And I think that's something that a protest movement tries to achieve, but it's ultimately not dealing with reality itself in that sort of overturning. It's cathartic, but it doesn't actually deal with the ultimate hierarchies that can be very toxic and um, unhealthy. But Christian faith, I think, is 
testifying to an ultimate reality when it does overturn these hierarchies and um, declares that we stand on a level ground before God. Yeah, and I think that uh, that I think goes back to a point you made earlier, Alistair, because I would see that as a point where the church uh, has failed to have anything close to that carnivalesque dimension to it. Uh, and uh, I'm, this would differ, I'm sure, from place to place, but in the United States, you have uh, very significantly class distributed churches, uh, certainly racially racially divided churches historically, and so that there's you you actually don't have the sense in the church of those, those some of those hierarchies are removed as uh, everyone within a local congregation comes to the table, but the range of people who are included in that local congregation tends to be pretty narrow. Uh, so that again seems to be a place where the the church uh, has failed to provide. Uh, something that now these protest movements are uh, are uh, uh, are filling it filling a gap that the church uh, that the church has left. The other the other p- place where I see that is uh, go back to a point Jeff made about the privatization of religious faith. Uh, not only do, does the the church fail to provide the kind of enthusiasm and um, um, uh, that sense of communitas that uh, that Alistair was describing. But I think it also because it's because of it has a, it has a privatized kind of vision. The church has tended to um, has tended not to see the the church's mission in terms of a mission of justice. I mean, but that is that is what we're called to do. Uh, we're to, to seek the kingdom of God and His justice above all things. I mean, it's translated as righteousness, but it's the same word, uh, and that does include. Uh, right treatment of those who are marginalized, right treatment of those who are oppressed. It means defending the oppressed and standing up for them and speaking for them. Uh, and the church has not um, has not taken that role and not pursued the justice of God. And I think, again, there's a, there's a place where uh, there's a kind of rebuke from these movements to the church that's uh, highlighting failures in, uh, in the church's own, in, in the church's own mi- ministry and mission. Well, well, it has and it hasn't. I remember being um, surprised reading Rene Girard's book, I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning. And I think toward the end of the book, maybe a number of chapters is devoted to how um, in the West, the Christian church has elevated the victim. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate victim. But then we've also looked at other people and and we've uh, elevated them. We've tried to, uh, instead of making them scapegoats, We've um, tried to serve and minister to them, and it's evident all through the West, hospitals, just you name it. Um, and yet something uh, something has been secularized about that. It's gone too far. It's, um, and I'm just curious what you guys think about this. Uh, there's, we obviously should have a concern about any victims of police brutality, of, of, uh, of economic uh uh, oppression, anything like that. I mean, th- the Christian church has always been concerned about that. And yet, perhaps maybe one, we haven't been as concerned as we ought to have been in, in the United States. Or two, it's been co-opted. This concern for victims has been co-opted and then skewed, even distorted a little bit by uh, a secular movement. Yes, Gerard's treatment of that is, he calls it victimology. I find it very perceptive, and it really speaks into the current situation in a prescient way. Um, that 
sense of the victim, I think also maybe goes back to some of the things that we've been talking about statues, that the people we celebrate in statues are people we celebrate for their agency, what they have done um, and achieved in history. Whereas the victim isn't necessarily someone who's done something, something has been done to them. And I wonder in a movement which is so dedicated to the victim and cannot really recognize much agency in history and celebrate it because agency is always polluted by injustice or something. And even if you were to elevate the victims of the movement into agents, they would soon get cancelled because of the various things that they have done. And it's only by negating their agency, by saying that they're pure victims, they're not responsible for any things that they have done, um, that they can be celebrated as victims. But yet, one of the features, I think, of the Christian faith is that we are able to speak truthfully about agents and the sins that they have committed while still celebrating um, things that they have done that are good and without having to reduce them to victims. And that's something that a movement that doesn't really have the same space for forgiveness um, and a sense of grace, I think it struggles to do that. Yeah, I think, Jeff, in in response to your comments, I think there's a part of it is a, a, the uh, co-optation of uh, victim status by a, a secular movement. And I think, and Alistair, you're right on right on point by saying that it's a the hope for reconciliation is not held out in the same way it is within Christianity, uh, the hope for forgiveness and reconciliation. So that's one dimension. I think the other part of it uh, is that the American churches have been co-opted by their attachment to the American project. And so um, it's, it's hard for American Christians to, ad- for many American Christians to admit the level of brutality that uh, the United States has committed uh, both uh, within its own borders. I'm thinking of uh, treatment of, uh, of native Americans, thinking of treatment of uh, blacks, Chinese in, in certain periods of our history and and so on. And then also, of course, outside our borders internationally. It's very hard for Christians to, for many American Christians to admit that because our identity is, as Americans, is so bound up with our identity as Christians and it, it feels like a betrayal. We aren't giving up on patriotism or love of country and being willing to admit to our country's failures. But I think that makes it, it makes it difficult. We, we have a difficulty admitting that there are victims of the American system. I think that's part of the problem. And I think it has to do with that over-identification with the American project. One concept I found very helpful in thinking about some of these things is that of the manufactured normalcy field, um, that there are ways in which we mask the reality that we're living within. Um, so whether it's death or whether it's injustice, whether it's illness, whatever it is, there are ways that we sanitize our reality and ways that we prevent ourselves from seeing the full um, unsettling reality of the world that we're living within. And there's something about a riot or a protest that punctures that and I think can be designed in part to puncture that, to give us a sense of the injustices, the chaos, the tensions of a reality that have been sanitized, um, that we've covered over with our systems, with um, various other structures. And it makes something happen as a spectacle. And I wonder whether simply within a society where there are so many felt racial 
injustices, um, other sorts of injustices and tensions, that that puncturing of a field um, that masks it all from us um, is very much part of the point. It's why making a spectacle really matters. Um, We need to feel that this is what has been suppressed, bubbling beneath the surface, and now it's erupted, and this is the reality that we're living within. And there, I think there's a hunger for reality, a hunger for moral reality, a hunger for candor about society and its tensions and problems. And the church has always been committed to connecting people with reality and speaking truthfully and with candor about reality and getting us in the very heart of reality itself as we come before God's throne. And I wonder how we can speak into that particular hunger, because I think there is something that's very real about that, that maybe the church needs to be more mindful of. Yeah, I would qualify that. I think and I think that's a really good question and, and a great point. I would qualify that. Um, I don't think that's the only factor that's going on when you have, it's not like you've got this underlying chaos that just comes to the surface and, and comes to visibility in a protest or in a riot. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but we have to reckon with the reality that people do uh, try to capitalize on a moment like this in order to create certain kinds of chaos, or at least the impression of chaos. That's certainly been a tactic of uh, of various uh, uh, revolutionary and nihilistic movements uh, going back at least to the late 19th century Russia, and um, no doubt before that. But you had to you had a deliberate effort to try to create the impression of a chaotic system. I'm not dismissing your point, Alistair, but I think that there's a there's a complication there. To what degree is this a, an eruption of something that's hidden from us? Is it a, is it a revelation of things that uh, uh, are are always going on but are not seen? And to what extent is it a deliberate effort to capitalize on anger and and a genuine evil and tragedy, uh, or many genuine evils and tragedies, in order to destabilize the system? It seems to me too. Uh, piggyback on what you said, Peter, is that there's a good deal of dishonesty here about history as well. Uh, and if we're going to identify uh, the bad, the um, the wicked, uh, those who were uh, who misused their power in our past, we also ought to recognize the good. And you know, America and the United Kingdom. In the history of the world, we have been some of the most um, repentant cultures. Uh, we've changed things. We got rid of slavery. We had a civil rights movement. Yes, obviously, it hasn't fixed everything, but uh, but there's been a lot of good that's that's um, that's not being appreciated. Uh, and and I think young people today, and again, I don't as an as an old boomer. You know, I don't want to come across that way. But young people today are not really being taught a balanced historical, uh, uh, given a balanced historical understanding of of our country. Uh, everything is bad. Everything is awful. Everyone was wicked and racist. Um, but yet, I think if, if people actually kind of read for themselves um, some of these historical documents and learn about some of the biographies, they'll learn that it's a mixed bag and there's good and bad. And it's, I think it's a 
it, it, for Christians, especially, I think we need to be thankful for our fathers, our fathers in the faith, our, our fathers, the fathers of the country, and for the good they did and for what they bequeathed to us, which is not all bad. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, Jeff. I would hope that as Christians, we're able to be very honest and frank about the past when it comes to that sort of thing. Christianity has a perfect role model in in the person of Jesus, and other role models can be helpful as far as they're imitators of Christ, but we don't need to make them into um, perfect or, or sinless role models in a way in which I think some political movements do need to do that. They, they need to have this sort of utopian um, past that they're locking into. And so I would hope that there can be a, a frankness uh, among Christians about those sorts of things. There, I think the possibility of forgiveness is really important because forgiveness is what enables you to tell the truth about the past because to actually accept forgiveness, you have to admit what you have done. And within scripture, the whole premise, I think, of scriptural history is the reality of forgiveness. We would not be telling the truth about people like David were it not for the fact that we have a gracious God. Um, and it's the fact that God forgives that enables us to um, honor those who have been oppressed and tell the truth about what who, what was done to them without, on the one hand, denying the good that God achieved through certain people who were greatly imperfect, but yet were used. Um, and when we lose, I think, uh, an understanding of forgiveness, history does become a problem. I think there's also beyond that, there is a desire when people become really atomized and alienated people are looking for grand situating narratives and we want to project our existential reality into the frame of a greater narrative that's something that the church has offered um the narrative of reality in jesus christ that our existence finds its place in that and when people lose that sense of a grand narrative they will be looking for something in its place and i think what has often transpired and particularly in the context of social media it's you have these great archetypal narratives that are symbolized by particular cases so for instance the death of george george floyd stands for an archetypal relationship between um black people and the police and the system um it's not just an individual case that requires justice it stands for some deep fundamental injustice to the entire system and not just in the US it stands for things elsewhere and it's been important to the UK and, and other parts of um, the Anglosphere particularly but also other parts of Europe and it seems to me that that desire for narrative is something that we have built into us um, God has created us with that and if we do not have a narrative to really address the place that we have within reality, give us a sense of moral purpose and agency, give us a sense of who we are, then we will grab at all sorts of other narratives. And I think that's part of what's going on at the moment. Um, people don't have a, a strong galvanizing narrative. They don't have a sense of history as something that belongs to them. And um, maybe they they feel alienated by it. It's not their story. It's the story of some majority um, of society, but it's not theirs as the minority. 
the Christian narrative, I think, is one that's far more capacious, far more um, hospitable to people. And I wonder whether that's something that we really need to emphasize at this moment in history. And and if the if the grand narrative, if the meta narrative is now we are the good, we are the virtuous, um, we have arrived, um, everyone else before us was bad, then that's likely to lead to the Committee on Public Safety with a Robespierre, um, which is what the cancel culture is kind of is. Uh, and that means, well, you know, in the words of Peter Townsend, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, uh, maybe even worse than the old boss. I think that Al- Alistair, the point about meta- about narrative is a is a great one, and I get I guess I want to bundle together that with several other comments you've made, where the church has I don't want to instrumentalize uh, the work that the church is called to do, but uh, I will for the <laughs> I will for the moment. Uh, the church has tools that address the specific issues and needs that are expressed in these protests. And there's a, there's a need for belonging that you talked about earlier. And the protests provide that kind of community and a community, not just kind of devoted to uh, fellow feeling. And this is not just a potluck community. This is a community that where you're, you're together standing against something that's wrong and seeking to change the world seeking to to put things right that are wrong. That's what the church is called to be. Uh, so you have this fellow feeling, this devotion to the justice of God. You have the need for an overarching narrative. I, I really like the the term capacious to describe it because the Christian narrative is not a white narrative. Uh, it's not a black narrative. It's a it's a narrative of God welcoming people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And that is not just a theory. That is actually what has happened in the history of the church. It was what ha- what is happening now, as uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Africans and South Americans and Asians are coming to Jesus and and coming to the church. So, all these, in other words, all these things that um, that uh, we get if we try to penetrate past just the protest, try to get past our instinctive, uh, visceral reactions to them. What do these protests actually? reveal about the needs and wants of people, the church has has ways of addressing those in very direct ways. Uh, and and not by inventing a uh, inventing some new uh, some new ministry that addresses uh, racial injustice. It's it's the things that the church is supposed to be doing all the time that address these questions. Yeah, I wonder if some of the balance of church preaching and sermons has uh, almost played into some of those um uh issues peters i mean it is very easy i think for a preacher to gravitate towards pauline epistles and things where you just have a series of imperatives very directly applicable to uh christian life it's very easy to gravitate towards that but a, a regular preaching and thinking about the the big narrative of scripture and the way in which the church is born out of that and we have our standing uh, connected to that i think could could help to redress uh, a lot of this i mean if, if there's one thing that narrative of scripture should make us comfortable with is, is the idea that fallen individuals can be used um for good in in the plans of god and that their issues don't need to be whitewashed over but can be 
learned from and and can be uh, helpful as as counter examples. And, and so, I think probably the balance of preaching could go some way to to helping all of those things. I'm wondering, uh, Alistair and James, uh, what observations you've made about the differences between the way these uh, the protests have developed in the UK and the United States. Uh, do, have you observed any significant divergences from your vantage point? Perhaps one of the things that I've noted more has been the similarity and the connection, um, which is noteworthy, I think, in a country that is very different. We don't have the same history of uh, population within our country that has been enslaved. And so to single out black lives over against other minority groups within the UK is a bit, it doesn't make so much sense. And um, many of the issues that would affect, affect um, black persons within the UK also affect other minority groups. And so it seems to demand explanation on why things will be framed in that particular um, manner by that slogan. And there, I think we're seeing an international movement, which is very much, I mean, it's interesting seeing some of the ways in which terminology can come fly over the the Atlantic and lose any sense of connection with reality. So people will talk about indigenous persons and you think, <laughs> who are the indigenous people in the UK? It's a very different, these terms function differently over here. And, <laughs> and we don't have we don't have African Americans over here either. We have black people, and black British people. It's and that sort of international movement, I think, has led to a loss of connection with the particular. You're looking for this very archetypal narrative, but whenever you spend time in a specific context and pay attention to the specific issues, that archetypal narrative will tend to break down, even in the landmark cases or the the cases that are really focused upon, when you look more closely, they tend to break down as archetypal symbols of the archetypal narrative that people are putting forward. And there I wonder whether this connection of the Christian faith with its locality, with neighbor, rather than these more abstract categories, gives us a way to break them down to size. So we're not trying to overturn this archetypal reality, which we're never going to do because it's almost impossible to work at that level. But if you focus upon the very specific problems within a very specific country, community, city, whatever, you can actually make headway. And that's why I've been, I've been concerned seeing the way that the American narrative has just been, as it were, transplanted to the UK without enough consideration of how things are different here in ways that might give us more traction upon certain issues that might present specific problems and difficulties and injustices that we need to address. And I think as Christians, as we have an ethic of neighborly love rather than just universal love, um, there's something that gives us a greater capacity to address those at the proper level where we would make a difference. Yeah, I've been struck by that call for, a, I suppose, what I'd call a ground-up response, the same as you, Alistair. I mean, um, churches, at least in my area, tend to be fairly non-diverse places. They tend to just attract people from a similar race and class and all sorts of other um, demographics. And um, as we mentioned earlier, some of the protest movements have 
capitalized that and offered something far more inclusive and racially diverse and diverse in other um, ways. And I feel like one of the reasons for that lack of diversity in churches is, is the car, actually. I mean, it's easy enough to drive to somewhere where you, you're going to fit in and you can gather enough people together of the, of the same class and demographic and, and so forth. And if that's the case, I feel like a, a, a practical way that I can start having that diversity is to meet with local Christians. Um, I, I have in my street, or at least a few streets nearby, Christians of all sorts of different backgrounds. And, you know, just local meetings like that, I think, could be a, a very helpful sort of ground-up way of addressing some of these concerns in, in which a, a top-down approach can never really feel like it's going to make much headway. Yeah, so something more like a parish-sized community rather than the the community that's formed by commuters. I, want, I wanted to go back to Alistair's point, um, which I, it, it, it's interesting uh, that you have that uh, the tr- the transfer of terminology from the American situation, even the name of the movement, Black Lives Matter, transferred over to the UK, and where it, the the narrative doesn't really fit. But I think that uh, that transferability is related to one of the things that makes me suspicious about the protests and about what the what the impetus and direction is, because Black has become a stand-in for something more than just African Americans who are historically abused by the majority of Americans historically have been. It has begun to include, well, people of color. So it's not just uh, African-Americans, but uh, Americans from other, from other countries, immigrants from other countries who are understood to share somehow the status of blacks. And then of course, includes other kinds of minorities, sexual minorities and so on. And those, that, that uh, coalition very deliberately, that coalition is what is, uh, that's what Black Lives Matter represents. It's not just, it's not just about racial oppression. It's about oppression in various, uh, or perceived oppression in various other in other realms. And it's it's a gathering place for minorities of all sorts to protest uh, and to advance their civil rights. So that's what makes me worried about Christians that jump on the racial issue, which I I, I certainly uh, I sympathize with. I think there's a real. There are real issues, both currently and historically, that need to be addressed. But in doing that, there's a they're leaping onto this bandwagon that now includes uh, transgender rights as part of the Black Lives Matter uh, or gay rights. You know, one of uh, one of the most in- interesting uh, recent discussions of this is in Christopher Caldwell's book. The uh, uh, I think it's called the Entitled Society or the Society of Entitlement, something like that. And he has an opening section where he talks about the civil rights. Act and how the Civil Rights Act has effectively created two different constitutional systems coexisting within the within the U.S. You have the uh, a constitutional system where people are, are uh, look to the Constitution itself as the law of the land, and then there is another sector that is uh, dominates one side of the political spectrum and dominates uh, certain levels of the judiciary, where the Constitution is read through the Civil Rights Act, and the Civil Rights Act becomes kind of almost a metaphysical foundation. And one of the points he makes is the way that other movements have uh, capitalized on both the rhetoric of, um, of the civil rights movement, 
Uh, they've been able to plug into the civil rights story and their story becomes a story of combat against bigotry, irrational bigotry, uh, and so on. So but, uh, that's just a, a long-winded way of saying that I think uh, the reason why it's transferable is because you have this this very diverse coalition of groups, all of whom share a story of victimization and all of whom share a story of, uh, of denied rights that includes real abuse, but also includes affirmation of certain kinds of sexual minorities that Christians have to oppose and on biblical moral grounds. So, Peter, is that why the accusation of uh, the movement or the movements uh, having some connection with neo-Marxist philosophy, is that why it gets some traction? Um, it seems to me like that's one of the reasons why uh, the accusation of a kind of Marxist philosophy of history and of uh, power dynamics um, uh, does indeed have some application to these uh, to the situation we're in now. Yeah, well, I, I, I suppose that where that's where it comes from. the the uh, The people, the Marxists or um, people sympathetic to Marx that I I read don't think that this represents this movement represents Marxism in any kind of obvious mm. way. Uh, they, and they point out the, I mean, it's inter- inter- interesting to see the, how some left-wing commentators have been opposed to this Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that have come up because they think that it's ignoring more fundamental economic questions and economic injustices. And it's a distraction from the more Hardcore Marxist kinds of issues that uh, that uh, left wing left wing people want to deal with. So uh, that may be where where the name comes from, but I, you'd get dispute from Marxists about whether that genealogy right. is accurate. Yeah, I've noticed that. On that front, I think it's curious to see how readily the um, current movement has been moved into the realm of the therapeutic and the managerial. Um, it's been entirely absorbed within the structures of the American corporate structure. So you have people like Robin DiAngelo, um, New York Times bestseller, speaking into um, HR departments and diversity programs and all these different initiatives within universities, institutions, corporations. That is the world in which this discourse is taking place. Also in the realm of the therapeutic, it becomes individualized. So it's about how you as a white person can come to terms with your guilt and complicity or in terms of the way in which black persons, persons of color can um, negotiate their own sense of self. Now, none of those are dealing with, there's a lot of talk about structural issues, but neither of those things are truly dealing with structural issues. It's almost incorporated within the managerial and um, therapeutic structures of modern society. And so I wonder whether um, there is a way in which, um, I mean, I certainly think many of the issues here are issues that they're framed in terms of race, but the actual level at which the injustices are really biting um, can often be economic um, and other structures that aren't immediately to do with race. They impact disproportionately along racial lines, but that discourse, I think, has been very hard to develop in a context where it's almost as if these things are latched onto in part because they're 
enable people to be divided along these lines. So you have great tensions and sense of awkwardness dealing with someone of a different race or um, different ethnicity because of this extreme sensitization. And then you turn to the corporate structures, the government structures, and all these other institutions that will um, act on your behalf. And I think the church operates on a rather different level. It's not the therapeutic, it's not the managerial, it's a level that calls for communal um, repentance and for reconciliation, concrete practices in which we get together and are knit together in Christ. And there, I think, in the level of just absolute practice, the church has ways of speaking to these issues that the society has been fumbling to get at, but just not achieved. Yeah. Your point about the corporate uh, uh, support for the protests, uh, I mean, that's, that's one, of the, one of the points that uh, left-wing commentators have, have made. This is clearly not endangering uh, what they see as a, an oppressive dominance of, uh, of international finance or international corporations, global corporations. Uh, it's been, it's been co-opted by it. Um, yeah, I wanted to pick up on your last comments too, Alistair, because in the last few minutes here, I wanted to turn to uh, more of a discussion of what, what we can hope for and what the church can do. We've already touched on this in a variety of ways. And I want to go back to the point I made at the beginning of the podcast about hope, because I think that, uh, that's that's crucial for addressing this uh, this it, it, it's a it's a time of upheaval and confusion globally because of the pandemic because of the lockdowns because of the protests that followed on them and it just there's a lot of turmoil in the world today and it's easy to despair to despair about the uh, possibility of racial reconciliation where that needs to take place it's easy to despair about the stability of our systems. It's easy to despair about uh, the, you know, just despair about uh, the future of the world that we know. And I think here, here's another place where the church has a, a unique contribution, uh, something unique to say, we're not revolutionaries. We don't believe that we need to sweep away all the past. And yet, uh, uh, as uh, uh, Jim Jordan has, has taught me over many years, we're uh, bound by a book that talks about um, God himself sweeping away worlds and, and starting new ones. And a God who is faithful in the midst of upheaval and turmoil and the collapse of one world and the rebuilding of another, that's part of our story. And so uh, we, can, we can enter into this kind of chaos with hope that the Lord is in the midst of it. The Lord is uh, doing something here the Lord has called us to faithfully witness and to preach and to minister in this setting. And uh, he's given us, uh, he's promised us that those activities will be effective in accomplishing his purposes. So we can, we can enter, we can, we can face this without despair or without panic. And we can uh, hope that uh, hope for a uh, uh, something, uh, God is going to do something through it. That doesn't mean we're going to be free from stress and turmoil and pain ourselves. No doubt. Christians are going to have to, uh, Christians are and uh, and will continue to suffer in various ways from all of this, all of this uh, upheaval. Uh, but it does mean that we can enter into this period of uncertainty with with hope for the future. And back to something we talked about earlier about religion, um, of James one, 
where James warns about anyone who seems to be or appears to be religious. It's not about appearances. It's not about social media. It's not about, you know, what you say, how you project yourself. He says that, remember that a religion pure and undefiled before God the Father is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. And um, that's, that's something that local churches, parishes can do. Take care of their widows, take care of those who are vulnerable, those who've been oppressed or abused, those who have significant needs. And that's where the real power is in the Christian community. And this is something also, if you look at history, the history of America, America has always been, at least in the past, big on local community volunteer organizations, most of them Christian, who dealt with all of these issues in the best way they could. And that's something we need to return to. It's kind of sad that we have all now become masters of signaling our virtue on social media and yet really not taking care of those in our midst. We're all concerned about uh, kicking up dust in public. But if I remember right, Paul tells us to pray for kings and all those in authority, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and honesty. There's a great deal of power in that kind of living in the Christian community, which we should not forget, um, given what appears to be power uh, in uh, in, in public settings these days, and Christians are tempted to think that's where the true power to change the world might be. On the subject of hope, I wonder whether we should think about the current movements also in terms of the collapsing story of liberalism. Liberalism was a story of society getting better all the time, of um, this constant, constant meliorative effect and the progress of technology, civilization, and wealth. And yet we live in a time when each successive generation is relatively poorer than the next, where we seem to have these lingering issues of injustice that just aren't going away. We're in the middle of a, um, a pandemic, and these our places within our institutions are a lot weaker. People's um, employment is a lot more precarious. It seems as if we are relatively less free than we were a couple of decades ago relative to our governments. And so the narrative is collapsing. The narrative that was rooting hope in this constant progress is not delivering, and there's nothing else really to take its place. And so people are looking for the utopian solution, maybe the Hail Mary pass, as you'd call it within the US. Um, this hope that with some great revolutionary activity, we might break through to a true good society. And yet, as Christians, we've never bought into, well, well, some of us have, but we shouldn't have bought into the liberal narrative. We don't believe in this um, constant progress through technology and civilization. We believe in human sin and fallenness and a world where things can genuinely go backwards. Um, but we believe also that Christ is the master of the Lord of history and he will reign until all his enemies are placed under his feet. And so, again, having a narrative that's big enough to deal with these setbacks without denying the place of hope 
Um, I think that's one of the things that our society has lost or has not really had. It's had this illusory narrative. And now the illusion is being punctured. It doesn't know what to do. But as Christians, I think we can give a narrative in which hope and realism can come together. Yeah, I hope that one of the learning points related to what you've just shared, uh, Alistair, um, from the recent issues is that science, so, okay, politics isn't the solution to a lot of things, but science isn't either. And so I'm I'm thinking now particularly of of COVID-related issues, but there we have a, a disease which is not well understood and can't easily be prevented by scientific means and i'm not hugely optimistic about um, uh, a vaccine coming out anytime quickly Um, but simple things like being in touch with neighbors and having a care for those who are in need and who are not able to do various things i think has been much more effective um, in in dealing with those sorts of issues and um, i think that's probably another um narrative i guess that's then being over- overturned that of science as the solution to the world's problems mm. one passage that comes to mind where wrongs are righted which i think is a helpful one to consider at, at the moment is the opening chapters of one samuel where we have this godly woman hannah who is is taunted by uh, panina and she is um, misunderstood and slandered by eli and finds herself in this very grievous situation and her response is is marked out not by hopelessness um but it is marked out by sorrow and weeping and and prayer because it it is a sorrowful situation but her prayer is heard and as a result samuel is born and so vindication comes to her she has been mocked because of her childless um status and then this song comes forth from her, which involves the, the correction of various power structures, the poor lifted up, the pillars of the earth shaken and, and replaced by new pillars, new power structures. Um, and that then is, is the beginning of, of greater things. So Hannah is not the only abused woman in, in the story. Eli's sons are um, abusing many women in in the temple sadly enough or in and around the the sanctuary i guess in those days but through hannah's son through samuel um eli is judged and his house is brought down and his sons are uh judged and so um more mistreated women are then um uh liberated i guess through the birth of, of samuel and this, I think, okay, it's not the only model in, in Scripture we have, but th- this is an important model, I think, of the uh, writing and correction of social wrongs from the ground up and through uh, a woman's godliness and sorrow and, and prayer. And I think it can be one that can uh, uh, fill us with, with hope. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
that's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.